Hey, uh, so Lee, I want to say God has not just given me words to give to the church, but also you guys. Um, I, I, I hope that as you guys were singing Lord of Lords, that you had an image of, of God on his throne, um, because we're about, to, we're about to dive into some of that. And then whenever the song title came up, I Want to Know You, I was like, shut up. Um, because when we get into Luke, we'll see that Luke wanted to know God more and more. So I'll say this once for Kyle. I'm not a preacher. <laughs> Apparently I said that way too many times last, last time I preached. Um, and I, I'll say this is my fault for Will going away, so you guys get stuck with me for a little bit. I read a book and suggested it to Will, and God spoke to him through that. Um, to, to take this time off. So here we are. God has some stuff to speak to us. Um, we are going to talk about Luke. We're starting off Luke. I'm going to go through the introduction later in the sermon of Luke, um, and we'll be in Luke for a long time. I don't know. That's an undetermined amount of time, but I'm excited for it. Um, and before we do that, I want to take some time to share with you guys something that God gave me a long time ago that has shaped how I view the Gospels, the four Gospels that we have in the Bible how I look at them, how I can read them and talk about discrepancies and see that what we have is what God wants. So what are the Gospels? Let's look. Um, some early church theologians, whenever they were writing about these Gospels and they had these four Gospels in their hands and they're reading them, they attributed to them different animals. And that sounds kind of weird, but they attributed not just random animals, they attributed a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And I'm not going to get into who said what gospel was what animal, because that's not what this, this sermon is about, and I could go on this, I could get real nerdy. And we could go on for a long time about that, but that's not what I want to do. I want to talk about why those specific animals, we're going to read some scripture, we're going to talk about those, and what they mean, and how... Um, how we can go that. So hopefully this will frame the gospel of Luke and also as you read the other gospels, but as we dive into Luke, how you view Luke and what God has for us. So if you would with me, we're about to read a lot of scripture. Is that okay with you guys? All right, so let's turn to Ezekiel chapter one. We're going to go Old Testament and then New Testament to, to talk about uh, what I believe was God's plans, God's plan for the Gospels as they are written for us in the Bible. So, book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. So, if you want to follow on the screen, you can. That's the CSB. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. A little different, but you guys probably all have different versions from what I've got anyway. So, let's follow along. And like the song, Lord of Lords, I want you guys to try to imagine what Ezekiel is seeing, and I'm going to explain kind of how I see it as well. So, chapter 1. Now, it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, uh, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, I love that name, uh, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. So, real quick, Ezekiel was part of the Babylonian exile. Babyl Babylonians came in, they separated the Israelites. That was kind of their thing when they took people over. 
they would separate the people. So they left some in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they took some away so that it would kind of crush their spirits that they're separated. So we've got these exiles. Ezekiel was a priest that was part of the exile. So he's in Babylon. So and after, uh, Verse 4, excuse me. And as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it. And in its midst, in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. And their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleaved like burning bronze. I want to pause right there. The Old Testament had some really weird ways to describe things. So I want to, what that means to me. Their legs were straight. We're going to see in a minute that they're carrying something. What their legs straight means that they were, their legs were not bent by the burden. All right? So their legs were strong. They were straight. Having a calf's hoof. I don't think that they look like Mr. Tumnus from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think what that means, uh, there's two things that I kind of take from that. Number one, a calf was a clean animal. It was used in sacrifice. Um, and you'll see the burden that they're carrying in a minute, why they would need to be clean. But also, I'm not a cowboy but Will is, um, so I get to talk about this. Have you ever seen a calf in a field? Like, they're just bouncing around. They're having fun. They're following their mom. Wherever their mom goes, they go, and they're just giddy about it, right? So I have that image of these creatures, whatever their feet actually look like, I don't know, but they were clean, and they went with joy. All right, so uh, verse 8. Under their wings on the four sides were human hands. As for the faces of and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. So they had two wings out. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right. All four had the face uh, of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. It's got to be in the back. No other place for it. So such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two wings touching another being. So their wings out. Two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. To me, that goes back to the calf's foot. They ran to, I don't know, to and fro, to me, how much calves. There you go. So, Verse 15, and this is where, it, if it's not weird enough, <laughs> like if y'all have ever read Ezekiel and Daniel, I don't know if there was something in the water in Babylon, they saw some weird stuff, but God has a lot to say in it. So here we go. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. So each one had a wheel by them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another wheel. So think about like one wheel turning this way, the other wheel turning this way, right? So they don't have to turn. They didn't have steering wheels and stuff in Babylon. Um, yeah, one wheel's in another. Uh, verse 17, whenever they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. And whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. 
And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went, and whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. All right, now, to me, this is the good stuff. I love this part. Uh, Verse 22. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering their bodies on the side and on the other. So I, I, want, I, I have to have a visual image of this. Have you ever been to a really fancy hotel? And in the lobby, there's like glass top tables. And the base of the table, it's not glass top like this, but there's like wood carving, like going up here and going up here. That's what I imagine. This giant crystal glass top like a table. And then these beings, we've got one here with wings outstretched this way, one facing that way, wings outstretched on all four sides. So... The four faces, if you guys are Ezekiel looking at me, the middle, there's a man facing here, right? And then I've got four faces on my head. On this one, you're seeing the bull that's on, or the ox that's on the left side. And on this one, you're seeing the lion that's this way. And on this one, you're seeing the eagle in the back. And they don't turn when they move, all right? So it moves around. So no matter where you are, you see all four faces, okay? All four looking out. There we go. I, I, I have to have a visual image, right? And then the little eyeball wheels are, are spinning around them, near them. Um, okay. I, I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. It's loud wings. We get it. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse, so on top of the glass table up here, uh, that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, which whenever we did Lord of Lords like this, this, this got me. So, uh, oh, let me go back. Where was I? Now, okay, chapter, verse 26. Let's just start right there. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. Some kind of fancy crystal. And on that, which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. All right, so that was a lot that we just read together, but I want you guys to have this image. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's exiled from Jerusalem with all of these people, and God brings him a vision of God's presence, right? Ezekiel is seeing God's presence, and we have these four creatures underneath whose sole purpose is to carry the presence of the Lord on the earth, right? It bounces around. Wherever the Spirit's going to go, that's where they go. These pillars, living creatures, they have the presence of God with them, and they bring it all around the world. Now, in this time, the presence of God rested solely on the temple, or in the temple in Jerusalem. 
Um, so the exiles were away from the presence of God. If you continue to read Ezekiel, it gets crazy. But in chapter 10, I'm not going to read it, he has the same vision of the same creatures, but they take the presence of God out of Jerusalem um, because of the sin of the Israelites and bring it, brings it to Babylon. And if you read past that in Daniel, we see all kinds of stuff with the presence of God in Babylon with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the crazy stuff that happens in Daniel. So, these four pillars that have these four animal faces are what God uses to bring his presence to the world. And to me, that is the four Gospels. That is why these early church leaders attributed the animals to the Gospel writers. There's all kinds of different reasons why they thought different animals for whatever reason. We can get nerdy and talk about that some other time. But those Gospels, in, in my mind, the way God has allowed me to frame the Gospels is he had this planned long ago. He had the four pillars that were going to bring his presence to the world set out long before they were actually pinned. So um, let's go to the other end of the Bible in Revelation Revelation 4. All right, and you know what? Revelation is a hard book to preach out of, but here we go. Um, Ezekiel and Revelation. Yeah. Are y'all there? Ready? Okay. We're going to read all of chapter 4. It's not as long as Ezekiel 1. So here we go. This is John, who I want to point out, also exiled. Also in exile by himself, has a vision from God. Chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take, what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sard and sardius in appearance. Right, so all the lapis lazuli and beryl, all these fancy, fancy jewels, it's something that is majestic to behold. And around the throne um, were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones, oh, wait a minute, hold on, hold on let's go back, go back. Verse 3, I skip verse 3. Uh, I skipped half of verse 3. So, and he who was sitting on the throne, or he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Same thing that Ezekiel saw, right? And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, uh, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, which calf and ox go together. I just want to point that out real quick. A calf is an ox, or an ox was once a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, were full of eyes, round and within. 
And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Didn't we just sing that? Yeah. Shut up, Leah. Gosh. Um, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Okay, so we see a little bit different creatures but I want to point out two things. One is, is pre-Jesus and one is post-Jesus. In pre-Jesus, we have four pillars carrying the presence of God around the earth. In post-Jesus, we have four creatures now around the throne. They are not under the throne. They are around him giving glory and honor and praise all for all of eternity. So, these early church theologians who were much smarter than me saw this connection that the Gospels were the vehicle that God will use to bring his presence to the world and they are the vehicle that he will use to praise him and give glory and show the world who he is, give his glory and honor for all time. So yeah, their sole purpose here in Revelation was to give glory to God. So they look a little different but we have two people. There's, again, I could get real nerdy about the differences and why the eyes are on the creatures here and, all, and on the wheels and all this kind of stuff, but we won't do any of that stuff. I just want to point out that pre-Jesus and post-Jesus, it's a little different. But the fact is, these four creatures who were the same then and now do not stop bringing God's presence and proclaiming his glory. So the Gospels are the pillars um, that carry God's presence to the world and the voices that proclaim um, his glory to the ends of the earth. So, now that we know that, with that in mind, I hope that that speaks to you like it has spoken to me for years. Um, that idea that God had a plan for what the Gospels would be. Um, as we dive into Luke for however long it's going to take, um, I pray that you would read Luke and listen to Will or whoever's preaching me at some point, Ben. But I pray that you would hear from knowing that God had this planned out, okay? Um, so we're going to watch a, a little video from the Bible Project that introduces Luke. It only talks about Luke 1 through 9. But if you don't have this app, the Bible Project app, I'm going to do a plug real quick. It's free. Go download it. You can watch all of their videos. Uh, and they're awesome. So, let's, uh, uh-huh, probably, that's where I would be. All right, let's watch this video. The Gospel According to Luke, it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author, and there are internal clues in the book of Acts as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. 
He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God and Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters 3 to 9, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's gospel. The extended introduction tells in parallel the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then as John and then Jesus are born and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament psalms and prophets showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication, and two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel, and he will become a light to the nations. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel and he's marked out by the spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here, he's the messianic king bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. 
it literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor, people who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness, people who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that Yes, he is the messianic king and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem, by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53 who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples and he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus' exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now that Greek word exodus, it's a clear reference to the exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil in all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel according to Luke. 
Okay, we're not going that far today. All right, so uh, again, those videos are awesome. I really like how they break everything out. Um, very good. We are, I only did one through nine because I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to nine. We'll watch the other half when we get there. So let's go to Luke chapter one. Turn with, uh, with me. Luke 1, 1 through 4, only doing four verses. All right, here we go. Uh, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile, compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you, in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. All right. So, Luke, I had this whole thing written out. I don't know if Will went and read it. I had like the, all this stuff written out about the other Gospels and why they were written, and I deleted it all because I could be up here all day talking about, again, I could get nerdy on that stuff. But suffice it to say, Luke probably had a copy of Mark probably had a copy of Matthew. Uh, John was written a little later. There are other things that were written about Jesus that Luke probably had. He tells us right here, look, there are other things that were written, but I set out to get as much as I could. So he probably had every piece of parchment scroll, whatever, written about Jesus up to his time so that he could study it. But Luke is the only one that tells us um, why he is writing. He is writing because he wants to know who Jesus is, and he wants to make him known. All right, isn't that our mission statement, right? To know Jesus and to make him known. Luke is the only gospel that sets out and says, this is what I'm doing, or this is what I did, and because of what I did, this is the fruit of it. He tells us here um, in verse 2, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. So Luke was probably written late 80s, maybe around 90 AD. So 40, 50 years or so after Jesus had died. So a lot of those eyewitnesses are probably dead. Luke has learned from Paul, Stephen, Barnabas, these people who learned from eyewitnesses. So you could say Luke is like twice removed or third stage or however you want to put that, right? So Jesus and his disciples, all the people that witness his stuff, and then because of that, you have Paul and Barnabas and Stephen and all these other men of faith, and now Luke has learned from them. So Luke set out to get all of that information beforehand so that he could know who Jesus was because he wasn't satisfied with their stories. He wanted to know, all right, is this true? right? I see Paul do awesome stuff. He's in prison. I've seen him beaten. I've seen him shipwrecked. Is it true? And this was the fruit of his labor. He set out, he wrote this. He wrote Acts. The video said Acts. So you have the gospel according to Luke would be stage one, Jesus and the eyewitnesses. Acts, stage two, all of the stuff that Paul did while Luke was around him. And then now Luke is writing all of this. And Theophilus, probably some high-ranking Roman guy that Luke had known. He also, he says, look, Theo. So Theophilus, look, I sat out and I learned all of this. And because I learned all of this, look in verse, verse three, what does he say? It seemed fitting for me as well, 
after they have handed all this stuff down, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Right? So not only was it enough for him to know, he had to make sure other people knew the truth. Um, so William Barclay is a theologian. I've got some of his commentaries at home. Um, I went to college for religion. I've got a bunch of commentaries. Again, like I said, I could get nerdy. Not that I read them all the time. Let's be clear on that. <laughs> all right? I do like to read, but I've got kids, so I don't get to spend a lot of time reading that, the nerdy kind of stuff. So I've got a couple of quotes from William Barclay because he says there's three things that in the introduction of Luke we can gather that will go on for the rest of Luke, and they are very important. Number one, Luke and Acts is the best bit of Greek in the New Testament, hands down, of the entire New Testament, which Luke Acts is the majority of it. Luke wrote, not the majority, Luke wrote the largest chunk, even more than Paul. It's the best bit of Greek in the New Testament. Luke was educated, all right? This, it wasn't like he set out to find stuff and didn't know where to start. He just like Googled something. No, he knew where to look. He knew how to find things. He knew how to write. This introduction section, if you go to like Greek writers and poets and stuff in that time, this is similar to something they would write. Like, hey, this is, this is my study of whatever. And then they would say who their audience was. Um, so when Luke set out to find out who Jesus was, he gave his best. Absolute best. Everything he could. Number two. And this one, this is what gets me and I... And I it's like one of the biggest points, and it's written really small. That's my fault. This is my first time putting slides in. Aren't y'all proud? So I'll read it to you. It is most significant that Luke was not satisfied with anyone else's story of Christ. He must have his own. In this sentence right here, real religion is never a secondhand thing. It is a personal discovery. Professor Arthur Gossip of Trinity College in Glasgow Glasgow used to say that the four Gospels were important, but beyond them all came the Gospel of personal experience. Right? So, I want to back up to Ezekiel. The four Gospels, the four pillars of truth, what are they carrying? The presence of God. It's not enough that we just have the pillars. we got to have what they're carrying. The four creatures in Revelation, they're for all eternity shouting of the glory of God. It's not enough that we just have them but it's what they're talking about. It's God. It's never a secondhand thing. It's got to be ours. We've got to know the God that they're talking about. So Luke had discovered Jesus Christ for himself. And because he discovered Jesus Christ for himself, we have the gospel of Luke and Acts. And he had to tell his buddy Theophilus. Number three, there is no passage of the Bible which sheds such a floodlight on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. So, the inspiration of Scripture, we believe Scripture is, is God-breathed and it's, it's inspired. This, looking at this intro, these four verses, it says, no, he said, no one would deny that the Gospel of Luke is an inspired document. And yet, Luke begins by affirming that it is the product of the most careful historical research. So, yes, it's inspired. God gave these things to Luke, but Luke had to do the work. God put that passion in Luke to do the work. Right, David, God gives us our passions. You just said that. God gave Luke this passion. 
and this is what we have because of it. So true inspiration comes when the searching mind joins with the revealing spirit of God. The word of God is given, but it is given to those who search for it. And then he has a little quote, Matthew 7, 7, seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be open, right? Something else that's in here in our inspired word. We've got to seek. We got to want to know God more. That's why whenever that popped up, I was like, seriously, that's like my whole message. Looking at the throne of God and what his plan is, and it makes us want to know him. So Luke did the work, and he had to share it, all right? Luke knew who God was, not because of the stories of Paul, which could you imagine being around Paul? Like all the stuff he went through, all the things he said, all the letters he wrote, like that would have been incredible. It would have been awesome. But Luke wasn't even satisfied with that. He had to know the Jesus that Paul knew. He had to know who he was. Um, okay, so I don't even know where we are on time. Oh, yeah, huh? There's a clock right there. All right, so what does that mean for us? Okay, we've talked about what the Gospels are, and hope, I, I really hope that it helps you frame how we study Luke, that God had a plan. God knew what he was doing, and he gave visions of this to Ezekiel. He gave visions of this to John, of these four things, proclaiming God's glory and truth to the world. What does that mean for us? So a lot of people will have preconceptions, most people, of who Jesus is, whether they were raised in church or not raised in church, right? If you were raised in church, your ideas of Jesus probably came from a preacher or you saw somebody living a life, and they were the ones that taught you. So kind of putting those things together, what they taught and how they lived, that will have shaped your view of who Jesus is. And if you didn't grow up in church, your view of Jesus was probably still shaped by the church because of our culture in some way. Um, but our goal here is to create an environment where we can all take those preconceptions and throw them out and know who Jesus is really. And let him adjust those if they are misconceptions. Let him do that. We're not trying to tell you guys exactly what you have to do. We want you to know Jesus. Like Luke, we want you to seek Jesus. We, that's what we want to do. We want to seek Jesus and make him known. So, um, as we look through Luke, that's our goal. That we would know the Jesus that Luke spent all this time trying to find. Last week, we had Vision Sunday, and Will shared that our goal for 2023 is to know God and to make him known. And then we, we come into Luke. It's exactly what the vision is. We cannot be satisfied with the stories of others. We get to share our stories here, and I don't want to take away from that. I'm not saying that that's bad because those stories are awesome. We need to share them. And we can celebrate when people are sharing the stories of what's God, what God has done in their life but we can't be satisfied with it for ourselves, right? I can tell you guys all about scuba diving and how awesome it is. I've never been scuba diving. <laughs> Would you trust me? No, like, because I don't really know, right? My stories don't mean anything, but we share stories because we know God, and then that in turn makes other people want to know God. That's, that's, that's it. We seek God. We experience him. And because of that, we have these stories and other people want to know God. Um, so, God's intent for us. I feel like a broken record. 
God's intent for us is to discover with fresh eyes the person and mission of Jesus as we study Luke right now in 2023, all right? That is our our goal, and that's what God's intent for us is, and also to invite others along on the journey, right? Luke wasn't satisfied with other people's stories, so he had to seek and find and know God for himself, and because of that, he had to share it with other people, right? We got to share our stories as when we see God work. I know we're a little nervous. I'm still a little nervous getting up here. I don't even know if I'm, I'm sweating a little bit, and I always do, but that's okay, because God has given me something that he wants to share with you guys. So uh, last week, Will talked about the battle plan. He talked about Jericho and how crazy that was, but that was their battle plan. That's what God told them to do. So our battle plan is to know God and make him known, right? God wants us to know him, and he wants our community to know him. And we have to remember, too, like the story in Jericho, God's ways are not the world's ways, all right? God may give us some crazy stuff to do, and that's all right. God tells you to do it, do it, right? He might tell you to walk around a fortified city for seven days without talking and then scream your head off. Sounds really weird, but that's how God showed up because it was, they could not take credit for that. God reminded me this morning that there was a time a while back when God had given me visions and I stood in front of this church and gave specific word of what God had said and what God had said. And then now it appears that the, that is gone. And it, it makes me think sometimes that I'm crazy. But I know God said to do it. And I've got to trust in that. And sometimes it seems weird. And that's all right. Our job, we talked about this in our life group last week. Sometimes God calls us to crazy things. And our job as a community is to support that. Right? We need to trust that we can hear God's voice. And when somebody gets up here and shares a story, if we know that they've been listening to God because we're, we're doing life with them, we know that they hear from God, then we can support them, even though it sounds kind of crazy. Could you imagine the, the guys walking around Jericho with the pots on their, their torches not being able to talk? And they get back to the camp and they're like, dude, how many days are we going to do this? Seriously. You know, like sometimes things seem a little crazy. But if we're all seeking God... God will speak that to us, and he'll speak us comfort and support whenever um, he calls others to do things. So, if we don't know God, we can't share him. That was something, did you say that last week? Right, that hit me. If we don't know God, we can't share him. Again, I sound like a broken record. We've got to know God and make him known, right? But if we don't know him, we can't make him known. So, um, I'm going to take from Leah and from Bethany last week. I was like feverishly taking notes while they were talking. And it's going to be paraphrases because I can't, I can't type a full sentence while somebody's talking because I'm trying to listen and trying to get as much out as I can. So, Leah said something to this effect. Um, uh, where is it? Okay, here it is. Sincere worship flows from personal devotion and experience with God. When we come together, we can't really worship. We can't share cool stories if we're not hanging out with God, if we're not seeking him and getting to know him. Bethany also talked about Nehemiah and the things that God had called them to to rebuild the wall. They all had their bit of the wall. I don't know how big it was, whatever, their little bit, but God had called them all to the wall. And there's that huge roll call of who was building what part of the wall. Nowhere in there does it say, and uh, Jedediah watched everybody. 
right? They all had work to do. That and our work for, for 2023, really for life, but as we study Luke right now, is to seek God on our own, to know him so that he can be made known through us. Um, my utmost on Wednesday, uh, this is just a, a quick quote from Oswald. There's so much good stuff in there. But he, uh, Oswald said, we are not sent to do battle for God, but to be used by God in his battles. All right? God's not calling us to build the wall. He's saying, hey, you got this section. I need you to hang this gate. God will give us all things to do, and then when we step back, we can see the forest. Sometimes we think that it's crazy what we're doing and it doesn't matter, but we're looking at the trees instead of the forest. God sees the forest, right? God sees everything. So we have to seek God and do what he says, and then he'll, uh, again, if we seek God, he'll be known through us, right? Um, Luke's piece of the wall was to write this out. Right? We've all got our peace. We've all got what God has called us to do. And if we seek God, it'll happen. I want to read one more quote. This, like, this second half of the sermon is all somebody else. I'm just reading stuff. Um, in Blackaby today, Will texts this to me too. It's so funny how God works. Um, talking about knowing God and making him known, Blackaby says, you will be incapable of ministering to everyone God sends to you unless you have his love. You cannot forgive others or go the extra mile with others or sacrifice for others unless you have first been filled with the boundless love of God. Seek to know the Father and his immeasurable love, then allow his Son to love others through you. All right? So that's what we have. That's our labor for the year, or three or four years. How long is it going to take us to go through Luke? We don't know. And then maybe Acts after that. Um, so I, I want to I pray over us. This may seem a little weird for some of you that grew up in Baptist churches. A friend of mine gave me a prayer book. It's a liturgy book, and I want to read a prayer uh, out of this to close us out. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was a little hesitant to do, like, pre-written prayer. It seems a little weird to me, but I didn't grow up with it. But God has some awesome things. And then God equated me, too. We sing songs that somebody else wrote all the time, right? Why can't we pray something that somebody else wrote? if they love God. So, um, as, I, as I pray this, uh, please think about the words and think about the labor that God has for us, which is to know him and make him known, right? Sounds easy, right? So, here we go. Our lives are small, O Lord, our vision so limited, our courage so frail, our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. We are gathered here because we believe that we are called together into a work we cannot yet know the fullness of. Still, we trust the voice of the one who has called us. And so we offer to you, O God, these things, our dreams, our plans, our vision. Shape them as you will, our moments and our gifts. May they be invested toward bright eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored with our own accomplishments or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice, our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us, in true humility and poverty of spirit, remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love and paths of your design. 
You alone, O God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit, have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts one to another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious workings of your spirit, who weaves all things together toward a redemption more good and glorious than we yet have eyes to see or courage to to hope for. May our love and labors now echo your love and labors, O Lord. Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained for this community, flower and winsome and beautiful foretaste of greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. You're coming back up.